Friends, would you turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 21? We're going to look at 1 Samuel 21. We're going to read the entirety of the chapter. Um, There's an interesting exchange in Jesus' life. It happens in Matthew chapter 12. We're going to get back to it and look at it a little more in detail. But uh, the Pharisees, they rebuke Jesus based on what his disciples are doing. And Jesus responds by saying to the Pharisees, Haven't you read 1 Samuel chapter 21? Now, what I just want to point out very briefly is that Jesus is the Word himself, and yet when he was with us, he studied the Word. Jesus opened his Bible, he studied and read his Bible, so much so that he can reference a passage that we're going to read today, the events of what occurs in 1 Samuel 21. And the second thing I want to point out is his question is one of expectation. He turns to us as he turns to the Pharisees and says, have you not read this? Do you not understand what occurs in 1 Samuel 21? Jesus turns the question to us of expectation. Are you not also, like me, studying this word? So when I read 1 Samuel 21 for us this morning, we're walking in Jesus' footsteps. We're obeying his command and his example. Hear now God's word. 1 Samuel 21, beginning in verse 1. Then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest, and Ahimelech came to meet David, trembling, and said to him, Why are you alone, and no one is with you? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has charged me with a matter, and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter which, of which I send you, and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread, or whatever is here. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread, if the young men have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest, Truly women have been kept from us, as always when I go on an expedition. The vessels of young men are holy, even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day when it is taken away. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. Then David said to Ahimelech, Then have you not here a spear or a sword on hand? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, The sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it, for there is none here but that. And David said to him, There is none like that, give it to me. And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is this not David, the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. And Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? And thus abruptly ends the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Father, we're asking you for eyes of faith to see you as you really are. We can't. There's so much that clouds that. There's so much doubt and sin. There's so many lies and deception. We plead with you that by your word and by the power of your Holy Spirit, 
you would allow us to see you as you really are. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. I don't know if you guys have a friend like this, somebody who is good at everything they put their hand to and everything seems to go right for them. You know, this kind of person that mildly annoys you, they're just good at whatever they do. I had a friend like that in high school who he could beat me at basketball and Monopoly. So that's like the two ends of the spectrum and he bested me in both and he would always get straight A's and he had a beautiful girlfriend. So this guy was better than me uh, physically, economically, socially, academically. He was better in all these areas. And that's the kind of person that David is becoming here. He's this young, ruddy, handsome man who everything is going right. He slays Goliath in this remarkable victory. He's given soldiers and he begins to win all of these incredible victories. He's beloved by the people. He becomes the king's son-in-law. He does everything right and everything goes well for him and he's celebrated and he's the man, at least for Saul, that you love to hate. Well, those days are over for David, at least as far as 1 Samuel is concerned, because David is entering now the valley of the shadow of death and he is going to be here for many years. When David looks back on these days, when he thinks about the events specifically of 1 Samuel 21, what we just read in Psalm 34, he uses phrases to describe this time like brokenhearted and crushed in spirit. When David thinks about his imprisonment to the Philistines, which happens at the very end of our passage, and he reflects on that in Psalm 56, he says, when I look back on those days, I see a lot of tears. I wept a lot during that time. If chapters 19 and 20 were dire, chapter 21 is bleak for David and things are going to get worse for him before they get better. I just want to briefly walk through the story and rebuild it so that we can see the dire situation that David finds himself in. Two weeks ago, we saw him with his friend Jonathan. Jonathan comes to the realization that his father Saul is indeed trying to kill his son-in-law, David. And when the two of them realize that together, they embrace, they hug, they weep, they bless each other, and David goes on the run. David runs, and he runs to a city called Nob here in our passage. This is the new location of the tabernacle. It used to be in Shiloh. That was overrun by the Philistines. Now it's in Nob, and there's a priest here, and it looks like David appears before the tabernacle with nothing but the shirt on his back. When he gets there and he approaches the priest, the line between right and wrong begins to blur. The priest sees him coming and he sees that one of Saul's chief lieutenants is alone and that doesn't sit well with him. He knows that something's wrong and so he's afraid, wondering if maybe Saul is after David and David is coming to him for help. He's he's afraid of that, being complicit in that. And so David, in verse 2, he lies to Ahimelech and he says, reason I'm here is the king has sent me on urgent business. I had to leave so quickly for the business that the king gave me that I don't have any food or any weapons and I need them from you. Now gallons of commentary ink has been spilled on this little interchange between the two because is this not a bold-faced lie? Is David trying to protect Ahimelech? Is he telling this lie so that Ahimelech won't be complicit in his escape? And if so, do the ends justify the means? Are there places where we can lie, where it's justified because we do so for a good cause? Now, at the very end of this passage, David's going to deceive again, right? He's going to come before the king and he's going to pretend like he's crazy so that he can escape from the king. 
what David is doing is wrong. But truly, there is a crime here that David commits that is worse than the lies that he tells. Look at verse 7. We thought at first that it was just David and Ahimelech who were here on the tabernacle grounds, but then the camera pans left and we find that there's another man there. His name is Doeg the Edomite, and he's a servant of Saul. When we get that little picture of him and then the camera pans back to the action, that's meant to be an ominous note. We're, we're meant to be unsettled by the presence of one of Saul's servants. We know that David saw him too. We know for a fact that David saw him because he admits as much in the very next chapter. That means this is happening. David comes to the priest and he sees that a servant of Saul is here and he knows that that servant is going to tell on him. And in spite of all that, he still lies to the priest to get what he needs and has some sense that Ahimelech is probably going to pay for this. David's act right here is going to cost Ahimelech and 84 other people their lives. David's going to be confronted by Ahimelech's orphaned son in the very next chapter and he's going to say to him in chapter 22 verse 22 I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house I'm not trying to throw David under the bus here with what he's doing in terms of seeing these men here I want us to see him as he is David is terrified, he's cornered, he's grasping at any means necessary to survive, even if that means at the expense of another person. To to press down on that desperation even further, he leaves Nob and he runs 30 miles to the southwest of all places to a Philistine city, Gath, which is Goliath's hometown, and he does so holding Goliath's sword, the giant that he has slain. If the Philistine city of Gath looks like a safe haven to you, you've got problems. You are in a desperate position, and David is, and when he gets there, he's accused, he's arrested, and he has to pretend like he's crazy so he can get out of there with his life. David is in an absolutely desperate situation. That's the story that's before us right here. I just want to apply one question to the text. I want to ask one question that I think this chapter is just begging to be asked, and that is this, where is God? Where is God? When I read 1 Samuel 21, I want to know where is God in all of this suffering? The Lord, he's only mentioned in verses 6 and 7, and it happens kind of anecdotally. He's mentioned to describe why holy bread is where it is. He's mentioned to describe why Doeg is, is detained before the Lord in the tabernacle. But this is all side references. God is not a major player in this chapter, so to speak. He has no speaking lines, and not a single person in this chapter references God or speaks about him or says something from him. Where is God. Now, if I could add a little heat to that question, if I could ask it with a little bit of cynicism, I would say this. I know God was in Bethlehem. I know a couple of chapters ago when David was anointed king over Israel and the only place he had to go was up. I know that God was present in Bethlehem there with David. 
And I know that when David finally becomes king over all Jerusalem and when he conquers the enemies that are around him, I know God is going to be there in Jerusalem. I know he's going to receive the praise from David in Jerusalem. My question is not where is God in Bethlehem and where is God in Jerusalem? My question is where the hell is God in Gath? Where is God at the very gates of hell when David is a nobody and he's running for his life? Where is God when David describes this part of his spiritual journey as crushed in spirit and brokenhearted? Where is he then? You know, friends, if you and I were honest, many of us are asking that very question in our lives right now. I suffer. I watch the suffering of a friend. I see this around me. Where is God? What is he up to? What is he doing? And why do I suffer as I do? You know, Jesus gives us a hint to the answer of that question in Matthew chapter 12, which I referenced at the very beginning. There's this scene between Jesus and his disciples and the Pharisees where his disciples on a Sabbath, they're picking grain and they're eating it. They're hungry, they're traveling. And the Pharisees who are watching like hawks, they see that and they say, aha, Jesus, your disciples, they're working on the Sabbath. They're picking grain and it's like they're harvesting on a Sabbath day and that's not right for them to do. And Jesus responds, as we said, have you men not read 1 Samuel 21? Have you not read that David, he goes into the tabernacle and he eats bread that is only lawful for the priests to eat? He continues, if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. In other words, where the ceremonial law and mercy stand in tension, mercy prevails. We're not talking about the moral law, the difference between right and wrong, but where the ceremonial law and mercy, they stand in tension with one another, mercy prevails. Why is that? Why would God allow David and exonerate David eating bread that he said in his law, his ceremonial law, is only to be reserved for the priests? And the answer is because God is a God of mercy. God is merciful. He loves mercy. He extends mercy. Our God is for mercy. When he sees his servant David hungry with nothing to eat and the hang up is a ceremonial law about who should eat the holy bread, mercy prevails because that's the kind of God we serve. God is for mercy. If you will take that lens of faith that that Jesus gives us and you will put that on, that God is a God of mercy, that he meets us in very real and very practical ways for our needs, and you apply that lens when you look at this chapter, 1 Samuel 21, it colors everything. It takes these random movements in the passage and turns them into tender moments of the mercy of God. Think about Ahimelech. Ahimelech is not just a chance sympathizer that supports David's cause. This is God at work. God gives David a friend when he has no friend with him. You think that Goliath's sword just landed randomly in the storage closet of the tabernacle? No, this is God. God gives David a weapon when he has nothing to defend himself. You think Achish would make this incredible blunder in Gath to let David go, who is the most violent opposition that he has? Is this just the biggest blunder of his career? No. David is at death's door and God provides him a way out. 
We ask the question, where is God? And Jesus answers, he's absolutely over this entire thing. God is showing David mercy upon mercy upon mercy. A Himalek, a sword, a quiche. But I even want to go further. I want to dig further into this passage because there's this little window into the mercy of God in the gospel that happens in the way that David gets his bread. David comes, he asks for bread, he's hungry, he doesn't have any, but he lies to get it. He tells Ahimelech a lie. He lies to a priest. Can you imagine? I, none of you would do something like that. None of you would lie to a pastor, but here's David lying to a priest. He's, he's taking matters into his own hand. He's twisting arms. He's trying to get what he needs. My question is, how should God respond to an impulsive, deceptive little punk who puts his needs before Ahimelech? What kind of lesson should God teach David right now when David is trying to work the angles and meet his own needs at the expense of Ahimelech? What should God do to him, I ask you? But I actually want you to hang on to the answer that you have for that question because it might say more about you and I than it does about the God of the Bible. God gives David what he needs in spite of what David does. God gives David exactly what he needs in spite of the way David is acting. Is that not the gospel? That while we were yet sinners, Romans 5, 8, Christ died for us. David, he walks into the tabernacle with a lie and he leaves with an armful of holy bread. Friends, holy bread is not pita bread. According to Leviticus 24, when you make a loaf of holy bread, you use three and a half pounds of flour per loaf. And David gets five of them. He walks out with an arm full of holy bread. It's a gluten fest in Nob. I mean, it absolutely. This mercy is being showered upon him. The God who can give manna bread from heaven day by day, the God who can turn a couple of loaves into a meal to feed the 5,000, the God who calls himself the bread of life, God gives anxious, grasping David this day his daily bread. God is for mercy. Friends, I wonder if you would allow Jesus to begin to put these lenses of faith on you as you see this world around us. That you could see God as he really is. He is a God of mercy who holds us every single day. Now I wonder if we could see that not only in things like good fortune or narrow misses or strokes of luck, but also in the things that wound and that hurt and that take away that all of them happen within the providence of a God who is for mercy. He is, and he does these things. I've been praying the Lord's Prayer every day for the past three months. It's something that John challenged me to do, and I do it on my way to work in the morning. I pray it for myself, and then I pray it for my family, and then I pray it for you, our church. And the more you pray the Lord's Prayer, the more you get an opportunity to dissect it and to think about it. And there's something in the prayer that I can't quite get my mind around. And that is that Jesus invites us to pray, give us this day our daily bread before we pray and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. He invites me to ask for what I need before I confess that I don't deserve it. 
And it's like a daily ritual in prayer to be reminded from God, this is always the case. Everything I give you is because of my mercy. Everything I extend to you is for my love. I walk into God's presence like David walks into the tabernacle. I have lies. I have lusts. I have anger. I have anguish. I'm grasping. I'm putting myself before other people. And I walk into God's presence with all of these things. And I walk out with an arm full of holy bread. Why? Because God is for mercy. That's the kind of God we serve. I want to close with one last thing. David, when he is under arrest, that happens at the very end of our passage, and he doesn't know what's going to happen to him, whether he's going to live or die, he writes Psalm 56. It's a wonderful psalm that I commend to you. I know that some of you have a favorite verse or a life verse, and I know that as a pastor, I should get behind that kind of thing and encourage it, but I've just never been one to, to find a favorite verse. There's 31,000 verses in the Bible. How are you going to pick one that's going to speak for all the others? That notwithstanding, if you put a gun to my head today and said, I need a favorite verse from you, I'd be hard-pressed to find a more simple, <clears throat> pure, and true explanation of the gospel than Psalm 56, 9c. We don't even need the whole verse. We need a third of it. And I challenge you as the church to memorize this thing, to crochet this thing. If you tattoo, tattoo this thing somewhere on your body because this is the gospel. Psalm 56, 9c. This I know that God is for me. This I know that God is for me. David is languishing in prison. He doesn't yet know if he's going to be tortured and killed like Samson was when he was in the hands of the Philistines. And yet with this lens of the mercy of God that he puts on and sees this world around him, he says, no matter whether I live or die, this I know, God is for me. Friends, God is for mercy. God is for me. Let's pray together. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us, we pray, from evil for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever and ever. Amen.